The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I read a short article in the paper the other day about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. That's a church building on what some think to be the site of the temporary tomb of Jesus where he lay for three days before he was resurrected. Basically, it's a tourist site near Jerusalem. You can go and visit it. But the reason for the article, though, had nothing to do with tourism. It was about the recent deterioration in things there at the church. The place has started to stink as the bathrooms have been left unclean and in need of some major maintenance. Evidently, the deal is that a number of different denominations own this building altogether, and they operate it as a, as a joint operation. But they've been bickering lately over, notably, ten stalls in the bathroom. Each denomination owns a certain number of stalls and is responsible for their upkeep. But there's been some disagreement lately as to who has which ones and who's responsible for this and who has to pay for that and who's supposed to clean this and who gets the naming rights to which bowl put their little tag on there. This toilet's sponsored by your friends at First Church. There when you need us. <laughs> Stuff like that. I'm, I'm sure that's what they're arguing about. But anyway, d- during the time of this, nobody's cleaning anything. So it's going downhill. And, and furthermore, the overflow of sewer pipe is in need of some major repair, but unfortunately it runs underneath of the property owned by another denomination, And they're not letting anybody do any digging to repair that until they get a cut of the stall business. They want at least responsibility for one of the stalls. This is a true story. The net result is that you go to Christ's tomb and it smells like the sewer. All because a bunch of people who call themselves Christians are demanding their rights from one another demanding their proper status, that they get what they should get, their proper respect and acknowledgement. It would be easier to laugh at them or ridicule them if they weren't so much like us. We're like that from time to time in our own little ways. A bunch of people who call ourselves Christians who make a stink of everything because when you get right down to it, we want our way. We're like that. We don't live to humbly meet the needs of others, sacrificing ourselves, laying down our lives at each other's feet for the sake of other service. In our text today, though, Jesus is going to point out a different path for us. Actually, better yet, he's going to lead us down a different path. He's going to walk somewhere and expect us to follow. Christ was and by His Spirit still is among us as one who serves. We are to be like Him. He's among His body as one who serves. His body is supposed to be like that, laying down our lives for each other in a way that would be remarkable to the world because it is not how the world functions. It's not how we function, if we're honest. But it must become so. It must become what marks us. How does that happen? Well, John 13 is going to talk about that. Working towards this main point this morning from John chapter 13. Here's the main point. 
contemplate so as to emulate Christ's humble servant heart. There's a relationship there between those two big words. Contemplation empowers emulation, copying, acting like. We're talking about that relationship. Contemplate so as to emulate Christ's humble servant heart. So we're going to work towards, let me read the passage and then we'll look at, back over it and pull out a couple of main points. And as I read, if I can get somebody to turn that light down a little bit, that would be helpful. John chapter 13, verses 1 to 30. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he had wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord... Do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. 
Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. passage begins by telling us about Jesus' mindset as they get ready to eat the Passover feast. This would be on Thursday night of that year. This would have been the Seder meal that they would eat annually to remember the meal that they ate just before the Israelites left slavery in Egypt. Well, a lot of things must have been going on in Jesus' mind. This is the night before the cross, keep in mind. A lot of things must have been going through his mind, but the thing that John chooses to bring out for us is love. Jesus' love for his own who were in the world. There's a distinction there, his own and the world. Focus is beginning to shift here from this chapter and following. Prior to this, Jesus has been focusing on the masses, and his message to them has been one of, come to me for life, I'm the light of the world. Those are the things he's been talking to them about, but now, different audience and a different message begins to dominate. From here on, he focuses on his disciples, especially the eleven And the message that he most oftenly touches on with them is one of love. His love for his own, his own love for him, their love for one another. That's going to become a a common theme here. And it begins right here. As Jesus is determined to love them to the end. That's what it literally says, to the end. And there's another one of John's double meanings. It's all the way to the end, to the cross, and all the way to the end as in to the max. And of course those things are the same. He loves his own to the max by loving them to the cross. That's the setup here. Jesus preparing to love his disciples. And then as the meal begins, he does something to symbolize that, to foreshadow it. Verse 3. Jesus knows that he has all authority. Jesus knows who he is, where he's come from, where he's going, that he has authority. John puts that in here so that we realize that Jesus knows the score. He steps into this, this foot washing, this submitting himself to the disciples. He's submitting himself to Judas, who he knows is going to betray him. Submitting himself to the authorities that's going to take him to the cross. He steps into all of that knowingly, by plan. What he does is he gets up, voluntarily lays aside his proper attire. Some symbolism in that. Putting aside what he should be wearing, and he clothes himself as a servant gets up to wash their feet. Now, picture this in your mind. This is not Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper with a big, long table with chairs. They would have been seated in a U on cushions, actually reclined, leaning on one elbow with their feet kind of extending out away as like spokes off of a wheel hub. And Jesus goes around the outer circle here and starts to one by one wash their feet. He comes to Peter And Peter has a problem with that. Surely they all did, but as usual, if you need someone to break the ice and bring up something a little awkward, count on Peter. And so he says, Lord, you wash my feet? That's the emphasis in the original language. You, my feet, and you've got to hear that to get what's actually being said here and to properly understand how we're supposed to apply this. The foot washing itself is quite unremarkable. 
Foot washing was common in that day. People washed feet, people had their feet washed. What's remarkable, what causes a problem is who is doing it to whom. That's the issue. Disciples might wash a rabbi's feet or a teacher's feet if they wanted to honor him in some way. Perhaps even peers might wash one another's feet. Maybe. But by far, foot washing happened by slaves washing others, everybody above them on the social ladder. That was by far the most common type of foot washing. Not everybody had a slave, but they were pretty common. Here's what would happen. You'd invite me over to dinner, let's say. I come over to your house, and while we're standing there in the foyer chit-chatting about how my journey was, how the kids are, thank you for inviting me, thank you for coming, making all that kind of small talk, all the while, crouched at my feet is your slave. Washing my feet, taking off my dirty sandals, wiping the dirt off. It, it's, a, it's a dirty culture, it's a dusty culture. I'm walking around in sandals, my feet are dirty. And so as a common courtesy to me to help me enjoy the evening in your home, you have your slave wash my feet. And then we talk, and as we sense it's finally done, we move on into the house and enjoy our evening. And if you were then to quiz me, hey, little, little quiz for you, what does my slave look like? I would know. Never even looked at him. I'm not even sure it's a him. It might have been her. Because all the while we're talking up there, the slave is down here. I never even saw the person's face. Their face is always looking at my feet, washing my dirty feet. It's a very concrete picture of the social ladder. And Jesus just turned the ladder upside down. And Peter and everybody else in the room is scandalized by that. And that's the point. Some Christians have missed this point and have read this very literally in its first century culture and think that this text is actually teaching us that we're supposed to wash feet. And to be fair, verse 14 seems to say that, wash one another's feet. What the whole event is saying, though, what Jesus is trying to say in the whole thing is, I am your servant. Notice, I do servant work. You do likewise. Do servant work for each other. That's the point. That's what Peter gets, and that's what he objects to. My feet being washed, that's not a problem. It's by you that's the problem. By my friends, maybe, by a slave, sure, but not by you, Lord. You're up here on the social ladder. That's how the world thinks. There's a hierarchy. Some are up here, some are down here. Some do things that are appropriate for up here, others do things that are for down here. That's how Peter's thinking. That's how everybody's thinking. But Jesus says, though I am up here, in fact, if there's a social ladder, I'm above the social ladder. I'm God. I know that. All things are in my hands. I've come from heaven. I'm returning back to there. I get that. But I am among you, my people, as one who serves. Do likewise. That's the point. He's not trying to teach us you have to wash feet. He's teaching us you have to be servants to one another. In whatever way that fits in your world, I would suggest it doesn't work with foot washing in our world because we don't wash feet. We do a lot of other things, though. Think about that. An example might be toilet cleaning or something like that. I'm a servant in your midst. You do likewise. Well, Peter and Jesus go back and forth about this a little bit. Jesus then sits down to explain himself. I kind of look at this text as like a target with a bullseye in the middle and then some concentric circles. The middle is what we're going to spend our time talking about, the, the foot washing and what it means. But there are circles around it that are setting up other things for the whole book. 
One of those is the love thing that I talked about already, introducing the idea of love. Another one of those has been hinted at repeatedly. Verse 2, Judas. Verse 11, you're clean, though not every one of you. Now in verse 18, that comes to the fore. Verse 17, Jesus promised a blessing if they acted like this. But then verse 18 qualifies that. Essentially it says you can't be blessed by God just by doing some stuff. If you're clean, then you can be blessed by God by doing these things. But you must be clean first. I'm not talking to every one of you. You've got to see that. You can't just try to follow this example and trust that God will bless you. You must first be clean. Then the clean ones are blessed if they do this. The elect, those that he's picked. He knows who he's talking about. He's drawing another line between Judas and the eleven. Seen that repeatedly in this book, several times in this chapter, in fact. And then what follows in 21 to 30 is this long ID passage, the identification passage. Who is it? Ask him who it is. Who is it, Jesus? It's this guy. All of that. I'm not going to go into that very much. The reason this is in here, though, you can see at the end of verse 19, so that you will know that I am he. Jesus wants to be clear about something. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Judas gets up, and what do they think? Oh, he's going to go buy some more food or, or give alms to the poor. When do they next see Judas? In the garden at the head of the armed guard come to arrest him. It's going to be shocking to them. And Jesus is telling them right here, I know that. I've always known that. Remember chapter 6? I knew it back in chapter 6. In fact, I knew it when I inspired David a thousand years ago to write Psalm 41. I, the Messiah, am going to be betrayed by one close to me, one who dips the bread in the cup with me. I am the I am. That you might know that I am he. It's the word there for the Lord capital L-O-R-D, we've talked about that before. I want you to know I get all of this. I didn't slip up. There's no mistake here. This is all going according to plan. And actually it serves to highlight Jesus' humble servant attitude even more. He's known Judas. Always. How do you treat him? He hung out with him for three years. Let him carry the money bag. Washed his feet. A note to us about how we should deal with people who are our opponents. He knew this. And he let it go on. And Judas then departs and it's night. Not just a chronological note. Of course it's night. They wouldn't have eaten the meal until after sunset. It's dark is his point. Jesus has been talking about throughout the book, come to the light while it's still day. The night's coming. Now it's night. That's the Last Supper from John's perspective. Interestingly, he doesn't even mention the cup and the bread. We're going to celebrate communion later. Cup and the bread's a pretty significant thing for Christians. John doesn't even touch on it. Why not? Because he wants us to get something. He doesn't want to cloud our view. He wants us to see something. Some main point here. He wants us to contemplate so as to emulate Christ's humble servant heart. There are two parts of that, the contemplate and the emulate. There's a relationship there. We're going to first start with Christ. First main point we see in this text related to Jesus. Contemplate Christ among us as one who serves. 
contemplate. It means look at, consider, make him the subject of your constant thought and reflection. To contemplate does not mean to note something and then set it aside and move on. No, it means to hold it up, to give prolonged attention to it. Contemplate Christ. It is not a reach for me to say, that is what life is about. Contemplating Him, fixing your mind on Him. And in this passage, if you look and focus and think on Him, what you will see is one who is among us as a servant. Let that grab you and sink in. This is the King of glory. The Lord, the I Am, the one who holds all things in His hand, who is clothed in majesty, strength wrapped round His waist, maker of heaven and earth, the one who knows all things about all things everywhere, actual and possible, the one who knows Judas, who understands Peter, who sees you. There He is in majesty, high and exalted, and now taking on flesh, sitting at dinner in this room. He's come down, set aside his right to be regarded as majesty, and he wraps himself in servant's clothes, undergarments, and a dirty towel. The one who holds all things in his hands takes and grabs hold of filthy feet and washes them. Get your mind around that. Contemplate the majestic voluntarily made low, taking on flesh, and then lower still as a servant washing feet, and lower still as a suffering servant going to the cross to wash his own, spiritually speaking. A once-for-all cleansing. He says to them, you guys are already clean. The cross hasn't happened yet, but he's reckoning their sin to what is going to happen. Sees their faith, counts it against the cross. Once for all, for all the sin of all of his people throughout all of time, cleansed at the cross, this humble, suffering servant. From the perspective here of chapter 13, we look at the foot washing and say, that's pretty remarkable. God come down in flesh to wash people's feet? That's amazing humility. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would wash my feet? It's a pretty humble servant. But if you fast forward just a couple of hours... The real washing that this foot washing is pointing to, the thing that we understand afterwards, that washing of sin dwarfs this foot washing. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me to deal with my sin, to purchase for me a share, a portion in the inheritance. That word he uses in verse 8, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. That's a word used in inheritance contexts. He says to him, I'm going to buy you into the estate. If I wash you, if you're clean through me, you have an inheritance. Vast, kept in heaven for those who believe, never perishing, spoiling or fading. Joy, peace, rest, the end of the struggle for you if he cleans you. Only if he cleans you. If I don't wash you, you have no share. Now I realize that most of us here are, are familiar with the cross. Some are not. If you're not, I, I hope, I pray, I plead with you, come to Christ. Be washed. Get in on the inheritance. 
But most of us know this. Most of us are familiar with this. And we're familiar with Christ humbling himself to go to the cross. A couple weeks ago, I quoted Philippians 2, reference to Jesus riding into Jerusalem humble on a donkey. Jesus laying aside his right to be worshipped and coming as a servant, even as a humble servant going to the cross. You know that passage. You get that. You see it. The washing connecting to the washing at the cross, not hard for you to understand. But what I'm trying to lean on here is the word contemplate. Contemplate. Keep it right here. Be gripped by it. It's critical because how that renews our minds. We are transformed in how we live by the renewing of our minds, the inner person. Our minds are renewed by what we take into them and what we, what we eat, what we drink. It's critical that we be eating and drinking, contemplating on Christ. What happens then is he draws us away from ourselves Our attention is drawn off of our own glory and our own rights and our own ways and our own desires and it's fixed on more and more on Him and His ways and His glory and His expectations. We need that. I am sure, completely sure, that as those folks sit down and argue about the bathroom in the church, that they are not contemplating the suffering servant's death. The irony of it all, they're at the tomb and they've forgotten it. It's not filling the windshield of their life. You know what I mean by that? As you're driving in your car, you're going down the highway, what's in your windshield? What's the vista that you're looking at? It's not Christ crucified, a humble servant come to clean them, a servant in their midst. That's not there. It's probably a piece of theology written in a book somewhere that they agree with, but it's been chucked in the back seat. What's filling the windshield? Self. That's the same with us. When we bicker and fight and slander and argue. Those experiences don't just happen to you. It doesn't just like happen that you had a fight. It doesn't just occur bickering with your spouse or with someone that you know at work or here in the church. Those things come from somewhere. God's told us where. Crystal clear. James 4, look it up if you want to. Comes from self. You want your way. That person's not going to give it to you, so you fight with them. Real clear. Christ, servant among us, is not dominating our vision, but he must Holding him up before you works like a powerful magnet. It realigns the polarity within you. All the electrons and whatnot get pulled around and some stuff gets pushed away and some stuff gets drawn this way. Self and self's goals and glory gets pushed away. And what's drawn out of us, what we're drawn towards, is this vision of Christ. To see him this way changes us. We're drawn towards him, drawn to be more like him. We must see if we want to be. To say that I'm starting to get into the relationship between contemplation so as to emulate. Starting to get into that and we're going to talk more about that a little bit later. Your desire to copy him is increased and your ability to copy him is increased. As you see him more and more and more and more and more. As you contemplate him more and more and more and more and more. 
I'll talk a little more about that. But there's another reason that it is critical to contemplate Christ's loving servant heart towards his own. Let me say just a word about this. If you see and believe, if God gives you grace to believe it, if you see and believe that he is stooped down to help on your behalf, if you see that and believe it, you will find hope amidst darkness. He has stooped down to meet you at the cross. Dealing with your greatest problem, your greatest need. Will he not also stoop down to help you wherever you are today? Yes, he will. Where today are you in need of grace and mercy? Where? Where do you need a savior, a deliverer, a helper, a comforter, a friend? He will meet you there in that place. God's posture with his people is to thunder from on high, if that's what they need. But it is also to crouch down and sit cross-legged, eye to eye. To be right there with you, to take you in his arms and hold you, if that's what you need. He knows best which, when, where. It's both. See him and believe he is stooped down so as to lift you up. Maybe not exactly when or exactly how you, you think. But he is that amongst his people, amongst us as one who serves us, loving us to the end, loving you to the end. He is in our midst, next to you, as one who serves. Contemplate that, always. He shows us that in this text. And based on that, he calls us to something. That's the second point. The second point here, the point of application, comes primarily from verses 12 to 20. Emulate Christ by laying down your life for others. Emulate Christ by laying down your life for others. That means copy him, act like him, do like he does. He sits down and says, verse 12, you understand this? You understand what I'm doing here? Verse 15, I've given you an example. Do like me, emulate me. Be sure of it. Jesus is the Lord. He is supreme over all. He's God come in flesh. That's clear. He's taken up a servant's towel and washed his creature's feet. And more than that, laid down his life for them. You and I, brothers and sisters, we are to do likewise. We must emulate that. Again, I'm not talking about literal foot washing. That misses the point. That's too narrow. That's too easy, in fact. It's calling us to something broader than that. Servant hearts, servant attitudes. Especially amongst the community. That's who Jesus particularly points them towards in verse 14. Wash one another's feet. This is supposed to mark our community. 
Is it not clear here? Truly, truly, he says, verse 16. Now hear this. This is a solemn warning. No servant is above his master. I am the master. I know that. I am the Lord come in flesh. But here's how I am. I come to you humble as a servant. You then have zero, zero grounds to act otherwise. To say, oh, that's beneath me. Or, I have my dignity, you know. Or, my skills and my calling mean that I should never stoop to do that. Or, this person's in sin for Pete's sake. Look how they treat me. I'm not, there's no way I'm going to humbly lay down my life at that person's feet. How did he treat Judas? How? He had a different relationship with Judas. Judas is not clean. He's not saved. That's really clear from the text. But still, he hangs out with him, treats him humbly, lets him hold the money even. It's amazing. We have zero ground for not living like this, even towards non-Christians. Tragically, we're often like all those denominations at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre bickering over our own little fiefdoms. Our right to control our own little toilet stalls and your responsibility to do all the dirty work. My right to get the fame for it and the acclaim. All the while covering Christ's name and his fame with a stench. I will not lay aside my rights for you. I will not lay aside my ability to get praise, my my right to do this and act like that. I'm me, don't you know who I am? I deserve better than that. Trash is Christ's name. And the world is watching this. Do you know where I, I saw that article? On, on the back of the first page in the section called News of the Weird. Where they put all those stories about the world's nut jobs. And there are the Christians. Bickering over toilets and making Christ's tombs stink. Ha ha ha, let's laugh at them. People notice how we act. People watch Clearly, we see what we're supposed to do here, what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to live humbly serving each other, laying down our lives at each other's feet, making others' concerns greater than our own, living people-centered, other-centered. Now, as soon as I say that, I need to clarify something, because if you were here last week, I was preaching about the fear of man. I said a brief definition of the fear of man, according to the Bible, is living other-centered, people-centered. We're supposed to avoid that. So what's the deal? Is it a contradiction? What's the difference? Here's the difference. The difference is rooted between last week's people-centeredness that we're supposed to avoid and this week's people-centeredness that we're supposed to embrace. The difference is like this. It's rooted in why you're living people-centered. Suppose that I find out that my neighbor needs someone to watch her her kids while she runs the store. Find out about that. My first thought is, I'm watching the game. I don't really want to do that. And my second thought is, but I probably should, because if I don't, then she'll think that I'm mean or selfish or that I don't like kids. Maybe she should talk to me, talk about me to others and kind of spread a bad reputation about me. But if I do it, then maybe she'll like me and I'll be kind of popular in her, in, in the neighborhood, and maybe it'll make her more inclined to do me a favor later. Now, I scratch my back now, she'll scratch mine later in some way or another. So, okay, I guess I'll do that. 
That would be one possible response. That's the fear of man. That's people-centered. That's basing my actions on other people because of how it's going to come back to me. What they might do to me or for me. How they might help me or hurt me. That's what we should repent of and avoid. On the other hand, your first thought might be, but I'm watching the game. And then you think, but she has a reasonable need that I can meet. And, maybe on top of that, she knows I'm a Christian. It'll make Christ look good. It'll beautify his name in her eyes. It's okay, I'll do it. That response is also other-centered. There's a big difference there. That response is focused on what is truly needed. And beyond that, whatever concern I have for how I come off is actually a concern that I have for how Christ comes off in and through me. The fear of man is people-centeredness that is really me-centeredness. The kind of people-centeredness I'm talking about here is what lays down my life at other people's feet and says, how can I help in the name of Christ? That's the kind of people-centered people that we are supposed to be. Laying down our lives for others. And verse 17 says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you do them. The blessing of God, here now in this life, probably, certainly in the next life. The blessing of God will come to you, not if you just know you're supposed to do it, but if you do it. Actually do it. So how do we do it? And there we're back to the relationship between contemplate and emulate. Contemplate so as to emulate. Change begins within. We as people, all of us, Christian, non-Christian alike, all of us live from the inside out. Jesus said, for instance, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, comes from somewhere inside. We live from the inside out. As Christ draws us to himself and displays himself in front of us, what happens is that we are renewed in here. We are actually changed, sanctified. You see something of his majesty. He fills the windshield in your car. And you're changed within. You become a different person supernaturally. God has to do this. May God woo you with this image of a suffering servant Christ. May he live this out in you. May he work it into you. May he destroy in you your self-infatuation, your love for self. May he get after you and show you something better and more. God must do that. God must pour grace onto us. But we must look. You can't contemplate something you don't see that you've never seen, that you've forgotten. We must look. We must pray that He opens our eyes. We must see, look for opportunities laid on our lives and repent when we don't. Act when we see them. And all the while, watch out for discord and animosity and conflict. Disagreement is normal. Totally fine. We're different people. We're going to see things differently. I might say this is red. You might say it's white and it, and it should be white. We might disagree about that. 
That's okay. We can talk. But if disagreement becomes discord and conflict, there is sin. It's not discussed, but is repented of. There's a difference there. We can deal with all kinds of disagreement, and we can discuss them if both of us, both parties, come to the table with Christ filling our windshield, contemplating Him, eager then, what we're going to find is that we're going to be stumbling over ourselves and lay down our lives at each other's feet. I don't think that's right. I don't think it's, it's true, but if that's the way we're, the group's going to vote, I'm going to help. I think you kind of said something mean to me there, but I'm going to look past that. I'm going to look at Christ and fix my mind on a vast inheritance that he's bought for me, and what I'm going to lose here from you, immaterial. I'm going to overlook that offense. Cover it with love. This works if you've got something else that your heart and mind are set on. Where there's animosity and discord, conflict, what you find right there is sinful self-focus that is to be repented of. Is that clear? Animosity, discord, conflict, repentance. Contemplate Christ who has forgiven you who has bought you an inheritance that's far more than anything else that you need. Paul will argue in Corinthians, then why not be wronged? Why not be wronged? He's talking to people in that context about Christians taking Christians to court. Close context here. Instead, lay down your life at their feet and just be wronged. You've got everything you could possibly dream of anyway. You have a share in the inheritance. And if that share in the inheritance and Christ's work to gain that for you is dominating your mind, it's what you're contemplating, then you can forgive, move on, discuss the facts if need be, without animosity. Contemplate so as to emulate Christ's humble servant heart. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.